what God's children said? Amen. We're going to have Laura come up and read scripture this morning. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is a gift from God. Slaves, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to talk about the kind of relationships that we form in the office and similar areas of our lives, and I thought it would be fitting for us to start off by taking a quick look at a scene from The Office, one of my all-time favorite clips. Michael Scott, take it away. Nobody should have to go to work thinking, oh, this is the place that I might die today. That's what a hospital is for. An office is for not dying. An office is a place to live life to the fullest, to the max, to... An office is a place where dreams come true. Well, I don't know what could be more inspirational than that, but we'll try this morning. Maybe a bit of an exaggeration, but the work that we do and the people that we do work with definitely tend to affect the satisfaction that we experience in life. And so the first of our readings here this morning uh, dives right into this theme. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. These are the words of the teacher of Ecclesiastes, this book in the Old Testament full of sayings of wisdom. And one of the pieces that the teacher explores is the idea of the role that work plays in our lives. But what do we do in the place that we're in? And this morning you'll have to do a little bit of translation based on what you're doing with this kind of section of your life. Perhaps work for you is raising kids and taking care of, of a family. Perhaps work for you is studying or, or preparing for some other form of education. Perhaps work for you is, is in an office or, or on a construction site or, or in any other place. So you're going to have to do a little translating this morning. I want the office to kind of represent this, this segment of our lives, this nine to five, this kind of third of our day that we, that we spend devoted to something. Um, so what do we do in this place that we're in? The office, the home, the classroom does more to take away from our humanity than to enhance it. And, and what do we do when the people that we spend our days with contribute more to our toil than to our satisfaction? So we're continuing on this month with this series in the month of April, the people who we love, right? The people we love, who also tend to drive us crazy sometimes. And this morning we'll talk about those coworkers. 
I want to begin by introducing you to the work of Frederick Hertzberger, who in the 1950s introduced something that he called motivational theory. And th there's a lot of words up here and a lot of stuff, and I'll just spend a, a brief moment to describe this. Basically, what he was talking about was that when it comes to our uh, employment, when it comes to our work, there are basically two general factors that contribute to our satisfaction. The first are demotivators. These are the things that if they are negative, this will take away from our satisfaction. So some of the areas he looks at are policies, the quality of leadership, pay, relationships, work conditions, status, and security. And so if any of those are lacking, if any of those kind of come fall below par, then those are the things that build frustration in us. So in order to have a kind of a healthy work environment, we need to try to get rid of some of those problems in a workplace. But then on the flip side, he talks about motivators. And you may think at one sense, well, isn't a motivator just the opposite of the demotivator? But it's not exactly, it doesn't exactly work that way. So some of the motivators that he described are advancement, uh, the work itself, responsibility, achievement, growth, and recognition. And so if those things are happening in our work, in the things that we're doing, then we will be bound to feel more satisfaction. So what he was suggesting is that, you know, what we can, should be trying to do is think about how do we get rid of some of these demotivators and how do we find a way to work some of these motivating factors in. Now it's unlikely here that anyone has a perfectly motivating job. It's possible. But most of us probably have a sense that things could be better than they are right now. And you may look at, you, at some of those and say, oh, I would love for my boss to fix that one right there. I'd love for my company to change that one right there. Uh, and, and you may just have the easy answers to those problems right there. So most of us have this sense that things could be better. And maybe it's an annoying coworker that you just can't get away from. Or maybe it's a professor who can't seem to grasp the fact that you have three other classes beside hers. Or maybe it's a friend who claims that her toddlers don't drive her crazy all day long. Uh, Melissa showed me this uh, gif of Mary Poppins, so the other mom, my kid, only eats organic food. You, sarcastic clap. That's right. Like, seriously, like, why are you making this worse for me than it already is? The varieties of our dissatisfaction are legion. They are as numerous as we are. Now, part of the challenge, we should probably, like, maybe go to the last slide or something, otherwise Mary Poppins will just be clapping for the next five minutes. And that'll be really distracting for everyone. Uh, this is a little bit of a tricky theme for me because part of what I like to try to do when I'm preparing a message is think about my own life and my own situation and how I can take like illustrations uh, from my experience and, and bring it out here uh, to all of you. Uh, but for the last 19 years, my experience of the workplace has been our church, right? So the number of appropriate illustrations I can use is somewhat limited. Like, I could talk about a certain ornery coworker I have, but that would just cause problems for the long run, right? Or how about those challenging days where I feel like throwing in the towel and moving on, just like everyone else does? I can't talk about those days either. But where does all of the dissatisfaction and struggle come from? Why does it seem so difficult to find ourselves in ideal working conditions? The answer, I think, is other people. So let's take a look at a couple of stories that come uh, in the beginning of the book of Genesis, this, this ancient book of stories in the Old Testament, where we're introduced to some familiar characters. And these are stories that you certainly would have heard before. Mo many people here would be familiar with these stories. Although I want you to think about this, uh, these stories as it pertains to your own workplace or just work in general and how the lessons maybe that we observe in these stories might apply to us today. So Genesis 3, 17 to 19. Basically, these are the words of God speaking to Adam, the first of creation. Because you listened to your wife 
and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So here's the first introduction of the identification of work as toil in the book of Genesis. Well, let's go to the next chapter, Genesis chapter 4, verses 10 to 12. Here we have God again addressing one of his creation, the next generation. Um, Here we go. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And so here we have in consecutive chapters in Genesis, God pronouncing a curse on the work that his his people will do because of their actions. So there's a common thread in these passages. And the passage is broken relationships that lead to the character's curse-worthy actions. So think about it like this. Uh, I'll give like a high-level view of what just happened in each of these stories and try to imagine if, if this would ever happen in a workplace environment. So Eve ignores God's instructions, all right? So would anyone ever, you know, ignore, say, a, a manager's instructions or, a, or an employer's instructions? So Eve ignores God's instructions. Adam joins Eve in her rebellion. God questions the pair. Adam throws Eve under the bus, and God issues consequences. So that's really what's going on here. And this kind of thing can play out in our work environments as well. What about the second story? Well, Abel, one brother, his work gets more praise from God. Cain ignores God's advice to simmer down. Cain grows jealous and kills his brother, and God issues consequences. Now, if you're taking care of children at home, hopefully you're not picturing that too literally. Um, we don't want any siblings killing each other, but, but you can see this kind of thing playing out, right? You know, whether it's uh, an employee, you know, feeling jealous about how another is rewarded and, and finding a way to get back at them. These kinds of things happen. And it's these broken relationships that lead to this cursing where God says, your work is going to be hard. It's going to be a struggle. It's going to be a challenge because you're actually working against each other in the work that I had originally given to you. And so it's been down on through the long years of history, other people getting in the way of our enjoyment of life. But the thing that can be difficult for us to remember reading these stories is that before there was any of this cursing, there was still work to be done. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Work wasn't a punishment. It wasn't like, because you disobeyed, now you have to go to work. It was because you've disobeyed and these broken relationships have created an environment where now your work is going to be toil. Now you're going to suffer and struggle under the, the heat of the day. And you're going to have to really work hard to get the produce out of the ground here. There was always work to be done. Work isn't a curse from God. Work is a good thing. And this is in line with what the passage from Ecclesiastes reminds us. That work, even hard work, toil, the teacher says, is a gift from God. So whether we spend our days in an office building or a living room, or a grocery store, whether we're in school, or raising children, or building a business, our work can be a gift. And it better be, if Eugene Peterson's right, he says, I'm prepared to contend that the primary location for spiritual formation is the workplace. That's a pretty strong statement. 
But when you think about it, if you spend a third of your life in your vocation, then it makes sense that that would be the primary place where your spiritual life is formed. We don't tend to think about the workplace in, this, in these terms. We don't try to think about our, our job as the place where we're being formed spiritually, but it is. If it's true, we better find out how to navigate some of our workplace tension. But first, take a look at how we think about the work that we do. Uh, Thomas Merton is a monk, and it seems kind of funny to refer to a monk uh, talking about work because they've kind of removed themselves from, in many ways, the rigors of the world. But even in a monastic community, uh, someone has to contribute to the work of their community. But he was trying to think about, you know, the kind of ways that, that people are, struggle with work. And he talked about how difficult it is uh, for us to be able to recognize the, the center of of the spiritual growth that happens in a workplace because of all of the, the, the noise and the bustle and, and the hectic pace of the world that we lived in. Now, he wrote this maybe 50 years ago, and so all of that is just ramped up. And he talks about how difficult it is, how, how we get lost in what he called the wilderness of neurosis because of all of the pressures that swirl around us. But there's this, this wonderful line in this middle of this, this talk he gives about work where he says, what a hopeless thing the spiritual life would be if it could only be lived out under ideal conditions. And so when we think about the work that we do, and we acknowledge, okay, none of us are in like the ideal job or the ideal situation. There are all kinds of things that we wish that we had more of or that we wish that weren't part of this struggle for us. Um, but we realize that it's not just under ideal circumstances that our spiritual life can grow. Because in that case, we would never experience spiritual life to its fullest. Now, some of us may think, like, man, I have the worst job in the world, like these, uh, these two here. You know, sometimes I feel I have the worst job in the world, and then this friend says, yeah, right. You know, so, I mean, we can play that game. We can compare, you know, how bad our jobs are, how bad our situations are, and sometimes we get into that game, right? We hang out with friends, and we complain about, like, how terrible the day was or how awful our boss is or whatever uh, the circumstances. Our professor is just so hard, and there's no bend, no... no leeway at all. We can get into these games for sure. And we have to acknowledge that to a degree all of us face struggle when it comes to our work. And we think about that passage from Ecclesiastes, what do workers gain from their toil? I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. So uh, my oldest son, Owen, is an employee of Zares, and some of you may have run into him there. And I'm sure that if you run into him there, he's you know, doing his work, and he's putting on a good smiley face, but he doesn't always put on a smiley face when he comes home from work. Uh, he's been working there like a year and a half, and about, I would say, a year ago, uh, his, one of his managers decided they would, uh, they would install something, kind of a neat little gimmick in the store. And if any of you have bought groceries at Zares Beachwood, you know what I'm talking about. So if you go um, to purchase milk, you open the door to the milk compartment, and this is what you hear. <laughs> And if you go to buy eggs, and you open up the eggs, you hear a clucking sound. So now the first time I did this, I was like, that's really clever. That is really clever. And maybe the second time I thought, oh yeah, there's that sound again. But it's been there for a year. And it's like, imagine yourself working in the dairy department, an eight-hour shift, listening to this mooing sound for eight straight hours. Like Owen's told the stories about how him and his coworkers have tried to come up with contraptions to disable this thing without their boss finding them. And he's just like all day long listening to this mooing and clucking sound. Like it's enough to drive a person crazy. 
But I think the burden the author of Ecclesiastes is talking about something else. I think we can all identify that, yes, there are burdens like that. There are parts of our, of our jobs that, that just weigh us down a little bit. But the burden the author of Ecclesiastes is talking about is something very different. And this is what I think that is. In verse 11, he says that God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. I think this is the burden that we feel when our job get, feels like it's getting the best of us. It's this internal understanding that we were made for something much more significant than counting widgets or earning a paycheck. And the burden we have is that we are created to do something more and we feel like whatever it is we're doing is getting in the way of us being who we were created to be. Betty Sleuth Flowers writes that it seems to me that's exactly our larger predicament in the world today. We're stuck in a story of who we are on this earth as human beings, and something in us wants to break free of it. And so we find ourselves in the middle of our studies, we find ourselves in the middle of raising kids, we find ourselves in the middle of, of, a, of a career, and we think, what is going on? This is not getting to the heart of who I am, and I just want to break out of this. But any job that we do, any role that we play, can be significant when we do it well. And when we allow ourselves to be shaped and formed along the way. Any job, you say? Even this one? Wanted. Someone to grind or chew hay for horse with bad teeth. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I want to stick with what I said. I, maybe not every job, but, but even, even this. We'll go with it. Some of you are like, is that a recent posting? Is the job still available? I don't know. Give them a call. See what happens. So our second reading came from Colossians, a letter of Paul to the New Testament in the New Testament church. And, and I want to read this passage, verse 23 to 24. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Whatever you do, even chewing hay for a horse? I don't know. But he doesn't say whenever you're doing something exciting or whenever you're feeling fulfilled in your work. He says, whatever you do, whatever you do, do it as if you're doing it for the Lord. Henry Nouwen writes that the spiritual life is not something we add on to an already busy life. It is to impregnate and infiltrate and control what we already do with an attitude of service to God. That's the spiritual life. It's not like we go to work and, and that's one chunk of our life that has nothing to do with God or faith, and then we go and, and we do something spiritual. This is what Peterson was saying. Like, your spiritual formation takes place in your workplace, and now one is echoing the same thing. It, it, it's not something separate from your spiritual life. Your spiritual life weaves in and out. It, it impregnates every piece of your life. So take a moment and think about your workplace. What would it look like for you to do what you already do with an attitude of service to God? Like that's a question that would be really good for us to let simmer on the back burner of our minds and in our hearts this week. What would it mean for me to do what I'm already doing in my nine to five with an attitude of service to God? It's a good question for us to ponder. 
Because the work that we do, whether it's in a classroom or a home or a factory, is part of what makes us who we are. And since who we are matters to God, the work that we do matters. Rob Tripkin from the Center for Faith and Enterprise writes that a theology of vocation needs to project a vision that identifies the deeper meaning of what we are doing so that we can begin to see the sacred and its potential realization in our day-to-day work lives. This is something that is such a significant, such a huge part of our lives, and it is not something we talk about a whole lot, but it should be. It should be something that we talk about with one another. Not how can I do some kind of spiritual thing with my life, but how can the things that I'm already doing be part of my contribution to the world that God is creating? How can our relationships with coworkers, with classmates, and with others help us with this pursuit? That's where I want to turn now, because this is a series about relationships as well. So part of what it means to live out our faith in the workplace is to helping reduce or remove the tension that's experienced by the people around us. The interesting thing about this passage from Colossians, the the piece that I read starts at verse 23. And my guess is that if you've been, you know, in church for for a long stretch of life, you've probably heard that passage quoted. Um, It's a pretty well-known one. And it almost always, again, I would wager, starts with the words, whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart. And it's a great encouragement. But the real challenging part of this is when we realize where the passage actually starts. These are instructions for slaves. That's why I had Laura start with verse 22 earlier. And maybe you felt a little awkward. Why are we reading about this? And I know some people get critical about Christianity and about the Bible and say, oh, see, now the Bible, it's like supporting slavery and we should write the whole thing off. No, but what Paul was doing here in a world where slavery was just the norm was saying, we are not actually going to live uh, by the, in the, with the relationships that are out there. We're going to redefine what it means to be a slave. We're going to redefine what it means to be a slave owner. Usually we start reading at 23 and we avoid the slave thing, but it's important for us to back up a little. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it, not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. So this is speaking maybe to the the student who's in a class who has a problem with a professor, or maybe this is speaking to an employee who's struggling with a manager or, or something like this, where you can imagine a situation where you're only, you know, doing what you need to do in order to make them happy, but your heart is somewhere else. Paul challenges these slaves. No, don't act like that. But serve with a sincerity of heart a reverence for the Lord. Now, I know that it's difficult. So I was talking to this, um, to this employee of a, of a local grocery store who will go unnamed, and, um, and they told me that they had, they had a vision for what they wanted to do on their last day of employment when they're, they're done, and, and they thought, you know what would be really good? This unnamed employee of theirs said, um, I, I want to slit a hole in the bottom of a couple of bags of milk, and I want to walk up and down the aisles and just leave this big, giant mess for everyone to clean up. And I was like... Um, well, that's like kind of warped, um, but also really funny in another sense. But it reveals the sense, I think, that a lot of us can feel, you know, this idea of like when we feel like we're maybe being oppressed by someone or being held back by someone or not respected by someone in, in kind of a leadership or authority over us in our employment, that we, we just have this sense of wanting to make it hard for them. And yet Paul says to these slaves, don't, don't try to make it hard for your master. 
Don't play these games of just being on when their eyes on you, but actually serve them like you're serving the Lord. Far from only giving instruction to employees, of course, Paul has words for employers as well. The beginning of chapter four, he says, masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. And again, you can look at this and say, ah, here he is just condoning slavery. No, forget about that. He is saying something radically different here. That, no, this is not a piece of property. This is not someone that you can just do whatever you want with. This is someone that you need to treat with, with fairness. You need to do what is right. Elsewhere in the New Testament, James 5.4, um, James writes, Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. There's a, an account that we are held to as, as leaders, as managers, as bosses, as whatever else, where we are actually required by God to treat people with fairness and equity. As an employer or even as a co-worker, you have the ability to contribute to or steal from the sacred significance of the work of those around you. And so if one of the questions that we should let simmer is how can we do what we already do with an attitude of service to God? Maybe another question that we should be asking is how can my role make and create a better environment and increase the likelihood of the people who I'm working with or who are working for me that they can experience more of who God has created them to be in this job. Our nine to five shape who we are, but in many cases, it also affects the people around us. Now, I, I wanna share a little bit of my own story. I said before that I, I didn't wanna do that and I couldn't because I'm a, I am a pastor and you guys all know the things here, but um, as I was preparing this past week, I thought I, I wanna be a little vulnerable. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm just speaking off the cuff here. I don't have notes for this. so. Uh, I just ask for forgiveness ahead of time if I say the wrong thing. Last year was a significant year of change uh, in our church for our staff team, right? So many of those of you who've been around will know uh, Steve Tullock re retired in the middle of the summer. And so we had kind of the wrapping up of his time with us and the significant relationships that he had. Uh, and we had George came on board with us in, in a halftime role. And, and so we had a kind of someone who's been a part of our church community for a long time coming into a new role but not the fullness of the role, so there were some gaps. And then at the end of September, Ainsley, who was leading our worship um, in a staff role, stepped down to, to dedicate more of her time to the work of the hospital. And so we had another kind of gap in our staffing and, and so grateful to the worship leaders who have stepped in and continuing to do a great job. But I think a lot of that change uh, was kind of wearing on our team. And um, in the middle of the fall, I would say that we started to have some challenging conversations and things it was being revealed that things weren't going so smoothly and we had a really difficult and yet open conversation um, Katie as part of our staff partnership committee joined our staff and we spent a good chunk of a day talking and it was an opportunity for people to kind of express some frustrations and some things that they didn't feel were really going well and it was a difficult for me particularly because I, I think I realized or what I was hearing was that some of the frustration was caused by myself. And some of the systems, some of the communication that was happening, I had to kind of, I was hearing you know, from our teammates that, that, uh, that I was actually making things difficult. But at the, at the time, I, I, honestly, I was just like, no, like I'm doing my best. I'm doing things right. I'm doing things the way that they should be done. 
And then I went out uh, and had breakfast with a new friend, um, and we had, we, I was just getting to know him and was listening to his story, and he was sharing about a, a transitional time in his life where he walked into the company where he was providing leadership and, and realized that he wasn't leading out of who he really was. And as he's telling me this story, and I'm sitting there supposed to be being a pastor and this new person in our church, um, I'm realizing that he's telling his story and it's, it's revealing something significant to me, which is that I was trying to be someone as a leader um, that I thought I should be and really wasn't leading out of who I was either. And it was a bit of an epiphany. It wasn't a bit of an epiphany. It was an epiphany for me. I felt like the light switch was off and it was suddenly turned on. And I, and I realized for the first time my role in creating the frustrations that our team were experiencing. And it wasn't from like a position of malice or it wasn't me trying to lord it over people. It was just me trying to do what I thought a, a team leader and a manager was supposed to do and trying to do the things. I, I thought this is the way it should be. This is what needs to be done. This is how we have to do this. But after that breakfast meeting, I realized that that's not the case and that I've actually been kind of playing this, this role that I thought I should play instead of just being who I am. And, and so I sat, sat, sat down with our team and just said, okay, like, like I've, I've heard what you're saying and I'm gonna change. All of this stuff changes today. I'm not doing this anymore, I'm changing this, we're doing this differently and we're gonna shift this. And for me, it was so freeing. And I think, I mean, you'd have to ask the rest of the staff, you can do that after if you really feel like it, um, if it's worked. But I mean, for me, it was just a sense of realizing how much my role as, as a staff manager in this case, was impacting the people around me. And in some cases, in negative ways. I, I don't wanna like beat myself totally down. I'm sure there are some good things too. But in some ways, I, I was making decisions that were creating barriers for people to experience this fulfill, fulfillment and satisfaction in their job. And, and this random conversation with a stranger made me realize that I, I don't have to do that, that I can shift and change. And I can become part of creating an environment and an atmosphere where people can thrive. And so that's a little bit of my story, and, and I hope that that's not sharing too much information, but just acknowledging how, even in the context of a church, where you might think everything just runs swimmingly all the time, it doesn't. And it doesn't because we're humans, we're people. We make mistakes. We see things from our own vantage point without seeing things from other people's vantage points. And last fall was a real exercise for me in realizing that I actually have a significant say in how I can experience my own satisfaction in my job, but also how others can experience satisfaction in their job. It's a work in progress, there's lots of room to grow, but it's something that I think I've learned and, and I wanted to be able to share that with you guys this morning because I think that this is at least part of what God is trying to get at when we open the pages of scripture and hear about him saying like, like all of this work that you do, all of this can be used to honor Christ. Each of us in our own stories, our own roles, our own positions, needs to discover how to bring who we are to our work. Now one continues to say, if I cannot find God in the middle of my work, where my concerns and worries, pains and joys are, it does not make sense to try to find him in the hours set free at the periphery of my life. There's no point in us seeking God at the end of the day or when we wake up in the morning if we can't find him in the middle of our day. So my prayer is that may we set out this week to find God in the middle of our work and may we become the kinds of people who bring a little piece of eternity to the people around us.
I'd invite you to stand and I'll pray as we head off to discussion groups. We can probably out gather around like two tables this morning. But, uh, no. God, we're grateful to have a place uh, to gather here, even on a blustery, wintry April morning. I'm grateful to have people to gather with, people that we can be real with, who we can invite into the challenges and struggles of our lives. Also people who we can celebrate with, people who we can ask questions of, and people who can, can help share with us insights that can, can help turn and, and shape the trajectory of our experience of life. And God, it's my prayer this morning that as we think about these, these passages of scripture, this acknowledgement of, of the value of work and, and the significance of the, the role that we play in, in making work you know, a positive experience for the people around us, I pray that these things would, would rattle around in our brains. And even as we gather around tables, that you'd use us to sharpen one another, to challenge one another, to encourage one another, so that these, this giant chunk of every part of our day would be used to honor you and to bring glory to you. We're grateful for work. Even if what we're doing right now is not something that brings complete fulfillment to us, we pray that we would be able to find you in the midst of it. And that you would use whatever it is that we're doing in this season of our life to shape and form us into the people that you have created us to be. Go with us now as we head, around, head into some time of discussion and as we head home to most likely spend time in the warm indoors later today. In Christ's name, we give thanks. Amen. So I would invite you to make your way through the lobby into the gym. Lots of coffee on this morning. Grab a hot drink, sit around with some friends, and dive into some good conversation. We will formally wrap up at 11 o'clock. Thank you.